Hello there, and welcome to Gooner U. My name is Dove, and my friend Keith is here to bring me up to speed on everything I don't know about soccer and Arsenal. And the Super League. That's right, this week we're putting aside our usual discussion of the week's Arsenal activity, and we will instead be talking about the documentary Super League, The War for Football, which debuted on Apple TV Plus this past January. As long-time listeners will note, Keith first piqued my interest about the Super League when he mentioned it on this very show. And as an Apple fan already subscribed to Apple TV+, I eagerly awaited this documentary's release. And, of course, after watching it, as is my role on this show, I have questions. Keith did not watch the documentary, but that's okay. He lived through the events described in real time. We recorded the show back in January when the documentary was still fresh in my head and chose to release it this week when we weren't able to record a regular episode. So, without any further ado, here's our Super League discussion. So, as uh, listeners may recall, we we covered the Apple TV Plus documentary, um, the Super League, Super League, the War for Football was what it's called, right? And that came out as we record this, we're recording toward the end of January. Uh, we don't know when we'll actually release this, so fun little time capsule. But it just came out a week ago, week, week and a half ago, and I watched all four episodes. Um, Keith, you don't have Apple TV Plus, so you're going on what I say about it as far as the documentary itself, right? <laughs> yeah so um you know you don't need to see the movie you've lived it right to to quote peewee herman um paraphrase peewee herman so. <laughs> something to that in this case yes i suppose that's true <laughs> so so yeah so it, it was it was interesting like the, the way that it turned out you mentioned well so i i'm trying going back through through our, our history where you know as we record this we just finished recording our 21st episode so it's starting to get a little bit fuzzy as to what we talked about in the past now but as i recall i asked a question about super leagues and it may have been in reference to something i'd heard with world cup play and you informed me about, oh, at this one time, not too long ago, they did try forming a European Super League that was all the best teams in Europe that would play each other. And that sounded interesting to me. But you also said that, no, it didn't, it didn't end up going anywhere. It was a massive failure. And I thought that would be something that would be interesting to talk about with you at another time. And then I heard not too long after that, oh, Apple TV Plus has an exclusive documentary. It's talking just about that. So I'm, I'm all in. Uh, let me watch that and we can talk about it. So I have now. I thought it was a very well-made documentary. I do have some questions or concerns about the overall tone or slant of it. And that's something that I'm going to be looking to you to kind of tell me how, how off base I am, perhaps. <laughs> but um, but it was, it was certainly well-made. Um, I think some of their Visuals were really, really interesting. They really so one of my there there are two that stand out. So they would show a map of the continent of Europe, and I think it may have even been the globe when they did this. But they were they were showing. So they'd start off with England, and they would show a pyramid where you have the Premier League on top, and then showing what we've talked about. I think we've used the term pyramid before to describe it, where you have all the lower leagues underneath them, and how the best teams move up, and the worst teams get relegated and move down. And they they showed that as a pyramid, and it was it was a really effective illustration of the, the metaphor that that we use for that. And then they were showing how each country has its own pyramid, and that was really evocative. And it kind of speaks to what their overall point was, which is that the Super League was not 
for the people that it, this is a very grassroots thing. Football is all over that you can't have a centralized control over it. But I think it was an effective way of presenting that case on, on their part. It was a very effective visual metaphor. The other one that I really liked is as they were talking about the whole drama, which which we're about to get into with the Super League and teams joining it and then eventually leaving it, they showed it. I don't know if it actually had the lines painted on it like a soccer pitch, but it at least kind of looked like a playing field. And each team was represented by one kind of figurine with a jersey that looked like that team's jersey, but they were all kind of modeled to look like they were made out of glass or something, glass or acrylic or something. And it was cool. Like you'd see one team, it was like a chess piece moving from one side of the board to the other or something. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was some, some good content there. It focused very, very heavily on the UEFA president. Um, and I'm blanking on his name, Chefferin. Uh, Alexander Sheffrin. Yeah. Um, so that, that was interesting. I didn't. So <laughs> when, when last I had checked in on UEFA leadership, it was in the FIFA Uncovered documentary and they were talking about Michelle Platini. And I think he ended up going down on some corruption charges related to all the corruption in FIFA. I think he got kind of ousted or resigned or something as a result of that. And so then, yeah, Alexander Chefferin uh, replaced him. And I didn't really know that. I didn't know who he was before this uh, Super League documentary, but it very much followed him. It was, it almost could have been looked at as like a, a UEFA documentary about Chefferin in this time of the Super League drama unfolding. It was very much told from his perspective. Hmm. And not only his perspective, but it, it, especially in the first couple episodes, really focused heavily on his relationship with Andrea Agnelli, who at the time was, uh, I guess, he's from the, he's, he's from the family that has owned Juventus for a hundred years. He was the chairman of the board of a team. I guess he's still an owner, but they made a note at the end that he has now stepped down from the board or something. Uh. So actually, this happened, obviously, as you said, we're doing this in late January. Apparently, he has just very recently been, I don't remember if it's banned or removed. Juventus has gotten itself apparently in a lot of trouble with Italian football authorities. This is not the first time this sort of thing has happened in Italy or to Juventus. Uh, but yes, Agnelli mm -hmm. has actually very recently been... Uh, uh, I believe had received a ban of some sorts. I, I, I don't want to speak too much of the oh, details. Okay. I don't remember them. But yeah, so... Um, Juventus, among other things, Juventus has been docked points. It's, it's whatever it is, it's bad for them. So, yeah, but yeah, so it focused like, I guess, Chefferin and Agnelli had a very close relationship going into this whole drama and, you know, they, they each have their point of view on, on what actually transpired. But, um, but yeah, so, so if I were to recap what the documentary presents as what happened, you had, the, the the initial problem, I guess, that caused the Super League to need to be formed from, from their point of view was you started having these teams like we've talked on the show about Manchester City. Uh, we've talked a little bit about. Um, sorry, the names of the teams are still not tip of tongue, but the <laughs> black and white striped team. Oh, Newcastle. Newcastle. <laughs> yeah. um, Newcastle, who we played not too long ago. Um, Manchester City, who are about to play uh, coming next week. Um, so some of those teams and some other ones throughout Europe, they, they specifically talk about Real Madrid is, is a big one. Um, they took on foreign ownership, very often Middle Eastern foreign ownership. 
And these were a different type of owner instead of being local and really just caring about the good of the team and running at a profit and being responsible. You kind of had, which as, as you and listeners may recall, uh, I have a very deep tech technical or technological background, technology-focused background. I've followed a lot of Apple and Microsoft. And if you go into their history, you would have anti-competitive behavior from Microsoft where they would intentionally make a loss on something that their competitors couldn't afford to take a loss on and do it long enough to drive them out of business. And then they'd jack the prices back up um, where you basically have teams that are able to run at a loss and they don't care. They will spend and spend and spend on their players to make sure that they have the best team. And if a team loses money, they don't care because they got lots of money. And this is their pastime is having the best team in the world. And that's, that's how they choose to, to spend their money. So that was how they presented the state of European football such that these teams are spending so much money on their rosters, just astronomical amounts on their rosters. And they don't want to have the uncertainty of, will I play in the champions league and make money from that? Or will I not this year and then take a huge hit because of it. And they just wanted to basically have the biggest teams always in perpetual competition playing each other. And they decided to go outside of UEFA and form their own separate league. And this came to light as UEFA's, I think, annual conference or something was was supposed to start. This is all happening as they present Cheferin, like driving from uh, Slovenia, I guess. Uh, I don't know where he was originating. He's from Slovenia. I don't remember where he was driving from, but he was on a drive from wherever he was through Europe to Switzerland, I think. I think I think somewhere in Switzerland is where the the conference was going to be held. So he, he's UEFA, driving in UEFA's headquarters. Europe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he's driving across Europe as this whole drama is unfolding, and he's hearing from Agnelli, "No, no, no, I didn't do this. Uh, let me let me talk to everyone, and figure it out." And eventually, Agnelli goes radio silent, and Cheferin realizes that yeah, no, he he has been in on it this whole time, and he was hoping that it just fizzled out and wouldn't end up becoming anything, but it did. And now all these other teams are in and Juventus is on the hook to, to join because they already signed something or whatever. But um, so then Cheferin has to come down on it and condemn it. And he, it, it seems like off the cuff condemned it even more strongly than he perhaps should have going so far as to say that any player on a team that is participating in the super league will be banned from UEFA. And I think he took it upon himself to declare international play, like in the world cup, which was really extraordinary. Um, and eventually you had the the head of FIFA, uh, Gianni uh, Infantino. I'm trying to remember his last name. Yeah, Infan yes, Gianni, Infantino. Gianni Infantino. Right, who, again, I was not – I was a, he was in the FIFA Uncovered documentary a little bit, but they didn't really talk about his tenure as the president of FIFA. But um, so I was a little bit aware of him. But so they, they talk about him and he comes out eventually and condemns the Super League. You have Boris Johnson, who at the <laughs> time was the prime minister of the UK. He comes out saying that he's going to drop a legislative bomb, some kind of massive tax disincentive or whatever it is to make sure that teams don't participate in the Super League. You just had all of these governing bodies coming out really strongly against this. And 
the thing that seemed to really push it over the edge and make the teams one by one decide to withdraw was alleged fan opposition. So the documentary simultaneously will show these massive protests. You had Arsenal fans protesting, Chelsea fans, all these Premier League clubs who were slated to join the Super League. You just had these massive protests to the point where it was, I, I think, and correct me if, if you remember differently, but I think it was, I think it was Chelsea who they were about to play. The match was about to start. There was a demonstration outside that was so bad. The players couldn't get off the bus to get into the stadium. They had a former player from the team come out and try talking to the crowd and say, hey, look, whatever you think you're accomplishing, this isn't the way to do it. You need to let your team play. What are you thinking? But the team was barricaded in the bus until the management basically caved and said, "Okay, fine, uncle, (laughs) we're not going to be in the Super League. You guys win. So. The documentary talks about that, but they also drop once or twice during it's, – it's a four-part uh, documentary. They, they drop once or twice during the middle couple episodes that, by the way, Super League was polling people this entire time and finding that in actuality, somewhere around 70% of fans actually supported the idea of a Super League, had no problem with it. But you just had such apparent – upheaval about it people are just so beside themselves that the optics i guess is what it came down to were so bad that once chelsea withdrew it was like permission for all the other teams to say yeah us too yeah you know because nobody wanted to be the one who says oh no well i i don't care about the fans or whatever and that's how it was (laughs) cast and so then you know one by one everyone withdrew except for juventus and real madrid and i think you said uh barcelona may have also uh stayed in and um and that's where we are today. It's it's a super league of three without the ability to actually play any matches. And it was going through the court system. There was litigation against, um, I, I think, against UEFA claiming some kind of monopoly status that won the first round in the courts. But then I think UEFA won on appeal. This is something they were talking about in graphics at the end of a documentary because this is all very late breaking stuff that happened not long before they they went live with with the show um so 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 far um everything i said is it does it accord with your memory of it anything you'd like to add just on the facts of those events um i definitely so i once the whole thing fell apart i have to say i stopped paying attention so i understand there's a great deal of legal wrangling i (laughs) i have no idea what's going on there and um the short answer is i think there is a lot of pressure being put on the clubs from without us, uh, particularly in England, but also some of the other leagues. So I, I legally speaking, as far as I'm aware, the Super League is still technically alive. And of course, they throw throwing out comments about how it's coming. It's it's still real. It could happen. Um, mm-hmm. I, I am skeptical of that for a number of reasons. I'm sure some of them we will get into. But I, I, I admit it's not a story I've followed a great deal since the whole thing sort of fell apart because I am. At the moment, I, I, I think at the moment it is dead for a lot of the reasons you talked about. There was a lot of pressure put on them, you know, from, from UEFA and certainly from, from uh, the, the governments, uh, particularly in the UK, obviously. You know, in, in a sense of UEFA, since they really, they should say the Super League is really being conceived as an, 
as competition to the Champions League. That's really right. where that's really where this that that's really the the showdown. In fact, the Champions League has recently announced a change to their structure. Um, I don't know if that's supposed to take place this coming season or if that or actually, yeah, obviously this season twenty two twenty three is going to be played as the way it has been for a while. There's a group stage and then a mm-hmm. knockout stage. But it, yeah, as as you've been following Arsenal this season, it looks like the Europa League. Uh, next year will be the the same thing, group stage and a knockout. And I think after that, I think starting in 24-25, I think they're rearranging it and they're going to do it differently and it's going to do a lot of things. Essentially, it's going to give more, it's going to have more games, which is going to help essentially up the money and theoretically will be able to provide more money for all teams in the Champions League. But in particular, we're talking about the big the big ones uh, many of the same super league clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so, in terms of of Sheffern coming out and saying and banning players, is UEFA they can certainly ban certain players from UEFA competitions, Champions League, Europa League, but also theoretically from international competitions like the European Championships. Could they ban players from the World Cup? That I'm not sure about. I don't think that's a, that's their decision to make. But if if FIFA's on board, you know, maybe. Um, but then you get into UEFA, to a certain extent, UEFA and especially FIFA. And we touched on this a little bit, I think, in the World Cup and the buildup. Th- there has always been a, a, a bit of a struggle between FIFA and the clubs and the leagues. You know, that the demands on players' time, who gets the players, who gets to benefit from them and, and their skill set. And there's a real back and forth over which is sort, you know, what are the. What rights does the international game have to to actually schedule games? What rights do the the clubs and the leagues have to not have their seasons interrupted or their players go off and do something else? You know, they're the players are are salaried employees of the clubs, and now here they're doing something else. That, you know, where they could get hurt and really cost the clubs. So I can understand sort of both sides on that on that question. That's really where you're seeing a lot of that struggle. The other end, and this is more where the governments come in, comes from sort of the bottom up. So it's important we call these teams clubs, which is very different than mm-hmm. the way we would talk about, say, a, 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 team, a professional sports team in the United States. Our American sports have always been extraordinarily business-oriented. They are franchises within leagues, which is a, sort of a different right. thing. The the clubs, and because of the pyramid and the notion of the pyramid, I mean, theoretically, especially in England where the pyramid is so is so large, but that you know runs so deep. Theoretically, you and a couple, you and eleven guys, or you know, you and ten other guys could get together and make a team, and then slowly over time, quite literally, play your way into the very top division of the sport. Which is not something that is right. going to happen is 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 not even theoretically possible in an American league. Obviously, right. there's all sorts of financial and logistical barriers to that. By the time you got to the Premier League, you'd all be ten years older, and you wouldn't be nearly as good. <laughs> like, or you know, probably <laughs> much longer than that. You know, there's all sorts of barriers to that sort of thing. Uh, but theoretically, it's possible. And so there is this sense of uh, you know they talk about these groups as clubs. There's a sense of ownership of them from a lot of fans. In some cases, it's technically true um or used to be technically true the business of the of the premier league and some of these teams has changed i believe technically real madrid is still largely fan owned it is a it is owned by supporters Mm -hmm. um 
And there's all sorts of weird financial chicanery that goes on with how Real Madrid is run, how Barcelona's run. Um, so, so you know that that's that's what people like Boris Johnson are were responding to was that that fan pressure, but that it, it the the game the game holds a very particular place in and the, and the sport holds a particular place in in English society and. It's very localized. You, you you talked about that that poll, right? The seventy percent of supporters. Obviously, you know, you can do a lot with polling depending on who's commissioning the poll, right? Like we, I think we all know that mm-hmm. polls can be can be manipulated. But you know, I think it stems a lot to who you talk about the site. We'll talk about this idea of of owning the game, right? I mean, on the one hand. The Premier League, and especially a lot of the big European clubs, are very international. Madrid, Barcelona, the Milan clubs, PSG, Bayern, obviously the big English clubs, have international fan bases, right? I mean, there are Arsenal supporters clubs all over the United States. They're all over the world. But at the same time, Arsenal is still very much based in North London, you know, it is still an English team. I mean, we saw this, early, you know, last year, right? When when the Queen died, they they took the game off, like that that because they are an English team, and the the English monarch died, and that's what you do in those circumstances, mm-hmm. or maybe what you do. So it's a very it's a weird sort of dichotomy about how they are. Like I suspect that notion, that a lot of that seventy percent came, assuming that number is an accurate representation of the 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 larger fan base of these clubs, which is a dicey assumption, of course, but let's assume for a moment that's Mm -hmm. true. I would bet a substantial chunk of that comes from people from around the world in particular. I mean, the heavier fan bases, a lot of them come from Asia. Where for them, it's much more interesting to see Arsenal, you know, to see Arsenal play um, Real Madrid or Bayern Munich to see the stars, play, you know, the, the best players and the cl- best teams play each other. Right. That's much more interesting to them than to see Arsenal play Wolves. Like that right. game has no, if you're from Thailand or even from here in the U.S., who is Wolves to you? Right. Whereas if you're in England, of course, you know, that's, that, that matters in a way, in a different way. So that, those things, those kind of things come off very differently depending on where you're coming from and all of that. And I'm, you know, there's an element to this where I sort of say, not that I don't feel a connection to Arsenal. It is my club. It is my team. I follow them. I, you know, I, I wear the shirt. I, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm emotionally invested in what they do. But I am always something of an outsider to it. You know, I don't live in North London. I am not English. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, in the, sort of the same way, you know, I root for the New York Yankees. I mean, I, you know, I, same thing. I've been following the Yankees for years, you know, but, but I am a New Yorker. You know, I grew up, not in New York City, but I grew up in New York. And so for me, the Yankees are a different thing, even though I recognize that the, the world, there are Yankee fans all over the world who much like, sort of like we do with Arsenal, will watch the team or track the team from afar. So it's, mm-hmm. I can sort of see both sides of that coin. Um, yeah, that I mean, makes sense. Just, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's just a lot that goes on into into. I mean, sports fandom is such a fascinating thing. I, you know, did the did the clubs? I, let me ask this: It seems like you're skeptical of the notion that the clubs back down because of fan fan revolt. Is that is that a fair characterization of your position? 
Um, not exactly. I, th- I believe that that is why I just believe that they may have over understood the significance of the fans opposition, basically that, mm. you know, if let's say that the, let's say that that number is off and let's say it's only 60%, let's say actually supported the super league. You probably only had something like, one percent or fewer of the fans that were out there demonstrating but you didn't have fans who were out there demonstrating in favor of the super league like they're they're looking at only one side of it and you're kind of allowing a very vocal but still relatively small amount of people to decide what ends up happening you know yeah that's that's what that's what it looked like it's, I, I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but I think to the idea of, you know, it's not so much that it's a, a, a even that it's a minority or a small minority, but it's the localized one. Like, I I think, I, I suspect if you would, and, and again, I don't know how much I trust any of the polling data on this, but I suspect if you ran polls mm-hmm. of the fan bases, you know, what do Liverpool fans in Liverpool think? Not the global mm-hmm. Liverpool fan base, which is substantial, but what do, the, and these, by the way, are mm-hmm. the people who buy season tickets. Who who go right. to the who are at the games regularly, you know what do they think? I bet that's where you're going to see a much greater. That's where the opposition is going to be much higher. And yes, they represent a small part, but they're also a very important one because of where they are located. I mean, right. all all, all that's, sports. That's a good te- point. Yeah, all sports teams are to a certain extent community organizations, and and really the most successful ones understand that, and that's true in the United States as well. Look at a team like the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, they're they're obviously very well run as an NFL team, but they they are connected to their city, and you know, not that they make decisions with the fans in mind, they make decisions with winning in mind. But they they they're able to build a connection with their community, and people in Pittsburgh take real pride in the Steelers beyond just winning games, but as as sort of as an ambassador for their city. Mm-hmm. And so I think. You know, as we as we talk about this, you know, the there is a sense of community ownership to these clubs that, you know, this is again, who and it's a good question you've raised about who who owns this. And right. And and one of the things you're going to see and we'll talk about this, especially in England, is if you look at the the so-called big six, that is the the six English clubs that were part of the Super League, that being uh, mm-hmm. Arsenal, Tottenham, Chelsea. Manchester City, Manchester United, and Liverpool. Of the six of them, only Tottenham are actually owned by someone by by people in England. Um, right. Chelsea at the time was owned by Roman Abramovich, who is Russian. Uh, now they're owned by an American. Uh, Arsenal, Manchester United, and Liverpool owned by Americans. Manchester City is, of course, owned by uh, uh, the the. Um, one Etihad? of the Emirates, we had, one of the well, Etihad's the company, but one of the the Emirates. Oh, okay. uh, I forget which one. I think Dubai is where they're from. So you know, I mean, those are those people aren't English. You know, they they aren't there, mm-hmm. and that's uh, you know, it's part of what makes those clubs so financially powerful. But it's also a little bit about what makes those clubs. You know, it's also can can give them a bit of distance from from the fan base. And I think some of them were, frankly, a little shocked at the the degree of the reaction that they got. Right. Well, so how did you feel about it? When, when the news broke that they were going to be doing this thing before it fizzled, were you excited at that idea? 
like to see Arsenal playing against the other big teams or did you side more with the localized opposition? I I was definitely I I mean there's always a certain sense of detachment to it. Like if this was really going to go through, then it didn't really matter what I think. You know, I, I'm sort of detached from it mm-hmm. in that regard, obviously living here. And, and I have a, you know, I started watching professional sports in the U.S., particularly baseball in 1994, which if you know the history of baseball, 1994 was the year <laughs> of the strike. So I've always had sort of right. a very detached sense of that. Like I, the business element of the sport has always been sort of in the forefront for me. Like I, I'm, I'm very conscious of it, you know, because the first time I started watching, it was very much thrown in my face. And so to bring to not go down the baseball rabbit hole too much, to bring this back to the Super League, I think the thing that really sort of offended me about the Super League was how very poorly thought out it actually was. If you if you actually look, what they had was a website announcing the clubs and this vague promise of this is that the Super League is going to exist, that these are the teams that are going to be in it and they're going to play a bunch of games and it's going to be great. Okay. Oh, okay. Like, like what, what, what war is, 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 what's the format? Is there going to be a group stage? Is there going to be a... Is there going to be a giant league set up? How is it, you know, they talked about uh, other team. It wasn't going to be a fully closed system. Other teams are going to be able to earn their way in. Okay. How was that going to happen? Right. Oh, I don't know. It, it was stunning. It's it, they simply just announced we are going to have a super league and they seem to expect that all the details are just going to fall into place underneath them. And so I was just mm-hmm. kind of stunned at like how poorly done the whole thing was. And also there was a concern, and it, I don't know that it was – I understood it even if I didn't quite – I understand it even if I'm not 100% sure on it. The concern was that the Super League was going to become the predominant competition to the point where you know, essentially these clubs were really only going to focus on that competition. It's essentially sort of like a supercharged version of the Champions League because that's where all the money was going to be. And I mean – I appreciate some of the romance, you know, as we talked about, you know, n- n- nobody in America cares about playing wolves. I mean, I, I kind of like that Arsenal plays wolves, you know, I, there's something about that mm. localized version of the sport that, you know, they, they have these long histories as these individual national leagues, which have all sorts of particular character and characters uh, that you, you sort of lose as you draw these big clubs together. Also, frankly, I have, I had a, I don't think unfounded fear. And I shared this with a number of Arsenal fans, as in I shared this with them that my feeling, but also they seem to share that opinion that we would not fare very well in the super league, that we would actually <laughs> struggle overall. And that a different competition structure, one that was more open, might actually be better for us. And there's a, there is a certain sense of accomplishment to that. I mean, again, a lot of these leagues are built on a sense of accomplishment to sort of build your way. Even I mean, Arsenal has never been relegated. Arsenal has always been in the top division of of English of English football. But like you, you do have to sort of earn your way into the Champions League. You know, you don't you don't just get get to be in the Champions League. You have to earn that, especially in in England. You know the top four teams make the Champions League. Well, England has a big six uh, already, right there. You've got too mm-hmm. many, and that's not counting. Newcastle is about to do that. Leicester City won a title back in I think it was twenty fifteen was the year. And Leicester City is suddenly in the Champions League. Like 
West Ham is in the is in European spots. Now Fulham is sitting up there. You know, it, there's a sense that like you you want to feel like teams could sort of work their way in. And you know, you you the difference between a league and and a, the Champions League. I mean, you know, a, a team like Manchester City could essentially build a, something of a super team, and they've dominated the league for the last five years, and their their resources are substantially more you know substantially larger than many of the other clubs whereas they have they still mm-hmm. have never won the champions league and there's you know because of you know knockout competitions are funny and you know weird things happen in one game and so there is a sense you know as an american i i appreciate a playoff postseason i i i understand i i like that i understand the drama inherent you know the best team doesn't always win but that's not really the point uh Point is to be entertained, mm-hmm. but I guess suppose that's an argument in favor of the Super League. I, largely, I, as I mentioned, there are times I do feel a bit like a tourist. I am, I am not from London. I, I am not, you know, I'm part of Arsenal, but I'm not quite part of Arsenal. And so, you know, I understand what it means to that community and those people, and what it means to England as well to have a team like Arsenal or Manchester United, you know, to be able to play those games. And you know, I, I, there's a certain sense I do think they lose something. And now, who knows? I don't know that the Super League ends up meaning the total destruction of the English League, although depending on legislatively how they deal with that, uh, certainly it would have meant a lot more money flowing to clubs that frankly are already substantially wealthier than the rest of the league or the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it does widen that gap a little bit more. And there is a certain point where that sort of thing becomes almost unsustainable, you know, as a competitive enterprise. I mean, part of what makes the Premier right. League, part of what makes the Premier League such a, part of what makes it so watchable, is the relative amount of parity, even compared to the other European leagues. I, you know, the fact that Fulham is sitting what in sixth, that that you know, Fulham. I've been to Craven Cottage. It is a, it is not a big stadium at all. They do not make a lot of money. They're not a big revenue club, and there they are near the top. You know. Mm-hmm. As I said, I root for the Yankees. I mean, in terms of financial resources, they can dwarf many of the other teams in the majors. But because of the drafting and developing model that exists in baseball, because of the parity that's been built in through things like the draft and, and other elements to sort of limit teams, uh, you know, financial weight plus the postseason, you know, the Yankees don't actually win the World Series every year. Um they haven't won mm-hmm. in quite some time, which is of some bother to me. But that's a separate thing. <laughs> but, but that sense of competition, that sense of competition, is part of what drives these leagues. And, you, and, a, and a, on a localized level, you would lose that. Now you'd be replacing it, of course, with big competitions with big stars. But yeah, I mean, I again, I, I, I push comes to shove, I wouldn't particularly care for the Super League. Um. But again, it's one of those. There's part of me that said if it happened, I mean, I I wouldn't stop supporting Arsenal because of it. Right. Well, so you bring up a couple things that that I think were interesting that I wanted to talk about. So one of them is that yeah, the Super League sounded at first like it was going to be closed, meaning these are our teams and that's it. 
if you want to be included, you need to, I guess, talk to us and we need to agree to let you in. But it's not meritocratic, like moving up from the championship to the Premier League or being relegated, that it's not an automatic mechanism. But um, but they did say, again, like you said, nebulously, that they were open, that there were, I think they said, four or five spots that would be reserved for teams to be able to rotate in and out of. But yeah, it was nebulous. They didn't say how or when and on what terms. Uh, so, but the narrative ran away with closed system, closed system versus our existing open system. So they definitely were not effective at communicating that. And I think, yeah, just an explanation of what that would look like and what teams might be eligible. That, but that I think, would have I think, been interesting. Yeah. But I think, I think part of the problem is they didn't actually know. I mean that that right. to me is well, the exactly. sort of the more right that to me is sort of the more unforgivable part of it is it's one thing to say that's going to happen but they had no idea how it was going to happen because they hadn't really thought right it may have even been an afterthought it may have been a reaction to the opposition to it like oh well we're not going to be closed we'll we'll be open four teams yeah. can move in and that was as much as they thought about it <laughs> well so we, so so we can't quite say that directly so there is a model they're working on something called uh, in 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 basketball which is a pretty big sport in Europe. Uh, there's something called the Euro League, which is sort of similar to that, okay. and that there are, um, you know, there are there are there have the they call them the founding clubs. I guess there's, I'm just reading this now. Fifteen of them are permanent members out of twenty, and then five places go to. There's some quali- called qualifying mechanisms that'll bring those teams in. Oh, okay. But you know, and basketball is pretty widespread and pretty popular in Europe, but nothing like nothing like soccer. Mm-hmm. Not, there is right. there's soccer and then there's everything else sporting wise in Europe. So, right. Well, so yeah. So so that's that's one thing that that I thought was worth talking about. the The other thing is yeah the the idea of these teams with unlimited resources playing against teams that just aren't operated that way that don't have an owner like that that mm. that's very asymmetrical and distorts the competition in ways that aren't really great for for the league so i could see where if you had a league that had no salary cap and that was okay like the the teams that are in it know that you're going to need to spend the most to have a shot at winning or a, a, a likelier shot at winning that that could make sense to separate them from the other leagues and make sure that the other leagues enforce a salary cap or some some kind of mechanism some way of making sure that the teams aren't just trying to buy their way to the top, which just from us talking about Manchester city, like that's a big reason that we are a little trepidatious going into matches against them is that's why they are so unstoppable in a lot of respects. Right. It's a, yeah. Like, do you know on, on that score, like what, what mechanisms are in place from the premier league or UEFA? Like, it seems like there may be some outdated salary caps that, that aren't used and don't matter or something, but in a, in practice there aren't. So, so actually, it's interesting in terms of the business of sports. You actually have you actually have the story backwards. That in fact, the Super League hmm. would enforce a salary cap, whereas the, ah. in, in terms of the existing leagues, there is no salary cap. Now, we'll we'll talk in a little bit about something called financial fair play, which I'll I'll try I'll see if I understand it. Try to explain that in a moment. But the and I think actually the way to think about this is uh, yeah, the beginning of the past season in Major League Baseball was the end of their collective bargaining agreement and they actually lost about two weeks worth of games where they 
they postponed a week or a week or two weeks worth of games because they were working out the new mm-hmm. agreement. And the one of the things the owners want is a salary cap. It's the players who mm-hmm. oppose that because, of course, the more money that can be spent, that's more money. Um, you know, that's gonna that's mm-hmm. more money theoretically For be spent on them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Owners like the salary cap because it becomes a, a sort of artificial limitation, particularly on the more free spending ones. So mm-hmm. actually, as I understand it, and I, I, I'm looking through what I have, of the little bits I have of the Super League, as I understand it, there were theoretically going to be invo- some salary controls to be involved to control costs. And then you talk about selling the television rights to the competition. And so essentially the clubs make more money. Right. So in a sense, you, you actually, in some ways, you're going to get actually opposition to a salary cap from you know, teams lower in the table because there's always a chance you could be bought by somebody who has a lot of money. I mean, that is mm-hmm. the, the big one example we talk about City. Who the other one? Other examples: Chelsea, uh, who was bought by uh, a Russian billionaire, Roman Abramovich, and then proceeded to start mm-hmm. spending money like dark, crazy. Yeah. Start spending money like crazy on players, and Chelsea went from a they were okay, you know, they weren't they weren't bad. They were you know, but they were a nice club in a trendy part of town. They won a title in the seventies, like they were kind of interesting, and now they are. They're one of the biggest teams in the world because they spent all this money to sort mm-hmm. of build up their infrastructure, you know, to buy these players and sort of made them a team that wins trophies. That's who they are. They win the league. They win. They won the Champions League twice. They they are a hmm. they are a powerful and successful international club. And there is a part of me that sort of looks at that and says, on some level, good for them. You know, the, the argument against the Super League and and even some of the salary caps and even financial fair play, which we'll get to is that it essentially locks the system in place that, you know, because once you start setting these caps or you tie them to things, you know, tie spending to revenue, well, Manchester United makes more money than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And so they spend more money than anybody else. And, you know, why, why is it so bad that Chelsea has now been bought by an American billionaire who's going to spend a bunch of money you know, why shouldn't, you know, why, why should Chelsea, if he's willing to do that, I mean, it's his money, you know, if he's willing mm-hmm. to take a loss on the club, uh, you know, it, because he really wants to win, you know, on some level, you know, why does, why shouldn't Chelsea be able to do that? Where you mm-hmm. start to see this get different is when you start talking about, you know, Manchester City and to a lesser, and to certainly, and certainly Newcastle. Because they're now essentially being owned. I mean, yes, they are legal entities that are distinct from the governments. But I mean, Paris Saint Germain is run by the sovereign state of Qatar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Manchester City is run by the by the Emirate, the Emirates of Dubai. Newcastle is effectively owned by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Like that, and that is a pool of money. That is almost untouchable. How how do you compete with that? You know, mm-hmm. right? And and I can see it's a different category of owner. A, yeah, yeah. And so what you start to see is this process, or it's called financial fair play, which was instituted by by UEFA. And the idea it, it, it's introduced as an idea to sort of prevent uh, clubs. Uh, teams are running into thing, clubs are running into problems like Leeds. So, in about the late '90s, early 2000s, Leeds United, currently in the Premier League, 
was near the top of the Premier League, was able to get into the Champions League, and they spent a lot of money, more than they should have, with the idea was as long as we keep qualifying for the Champions League and getting the money from those games, which is substantial, as long as we keep doing that, we're going to be financially okay. And then they missed out. And then they missed out mm-hmm. again, and they actually went into a tremendous amount of debt, and they, they fell pretty far down the table. And so Leeds has sort of been rebuilding themselves the last few years. Only, you know, they've only been back in the Premier League, I think, for this is their, this is their second or third year back up. Um, so for them, right. it's been I remember a bit of a... that coming up probably around when we played them earlier this season. Yeah. yeah. And so there's this fear. I mean, because you can have, remember, these are independent businesses. You know, in the NFL, if you, if you run your franchise poorly, you're going to be propped up by the rest of the league. And there's, there are a lot of, um, you get X amount of dollars from television, but you also have a lot of re- financial regulations. The NFL has a very strict salary cap. Uh, they have a lot of financial rules that basically prevent teams from doing that. European mm. soccer clubs are not run that way. They are independent entities. Actually, we discovered this a lot during the pandemic when they had to shut down and couldn't play games. They actually operate on very thin margins. They are. We talk about right. them being money-making machines. All that money gets turned back into the team in some way, and when they're not playing games, they're not making any money, and they're they're in trouble. And you can have... Clubs quite literally go bankrupt, and uh, the the famous case was the the Scottish club Rangers out of Glasgow. Actually, I want to say it was about twenty twelve, somewhere in that range. They they were liquidated as a club. They had to reformulate hmm. themselves as a brand new entity, business wise. I mean, they adopted the history of the club. They 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 technically they just changed the legal name, but they were Scottish football is just. It, Rangers and Celtic trading the title back and forth. Uh, the last okay. team other than the two of them to win the Scottish title was Aberdeen in 1983. Mm-hmm. Quite literally, no team in Scotland has won the league other than those two in our lifetimes. Rangers got sent down to the bottom of Scottish football and literally had to work their way back up because they were reformed mm-hmm. as an entity. Now, for all kinds of reasons, they ended up being fine. But there's a concern that you're going to have these clubs put themselves in this financial situation. So financial fair play basically says, more or less, your operating expenses have to be tied into your income. That you can only spend so much money based on how much, based on how much money you make. Mm-hmm. And there's all sorts of calculations over what counts as money you're allowed to spend, what counts as money, what counts as revenue. So there are rules and ways around it, and and it's hard to tell how much teeth they have. I Manchester City was accused of, you know, breaking the rules. They sued in the in a European court. It was called the the Court for the Arbitration of Sport. They sued in court. And the court basically said, "Nah, they're fine. They didn't they didn't break any rules." Mm-hmm. And so. It's hard to say how much teeth that sort of thing really has, but it's yeah. yeah, it's it's a it's a very different business model than we run on the U.S. and there, so there are different kinds of concerns uh, that they're looking at. Well, and I could also see so you'll you'll have a tough time getting me to argue against free markets in any given situation. I think, of course, thinking about it from a market perspective, yeah, <laughs> thinking about it from a market perspective with with European soccer, as soon as Premier League says there's a salary cap of any sort, 
Well, all that means is for all the leagues in Europe that don't have salary caps, all of a sudden the best players are going to have to go over there if they want to get paid what they're worth, right? Like any kind of artificial limit on what you can play pay players means that the players will need to get paid that amount from someplace else because there is so much competition in soccer. Whereas if you're looking at American football, well, yeah, good luck finding a way to, you know, play outside the NFL. So, you know, whatever, if, if the NFL imposes a limit, then that basically is a monopoly on that sport. Whereas there really is no such monopoly on soccer. The closest you come is UEFA's monopoly on European soccer, which was ostensibly, I think, what the court case was about was that they were they had monopolistic control to dictate terms to the clubs. But yeah, and and that really comes down to the real fight here is between the these clubs and and this is not a new idea. This sort of breakaway quote unquote super league of European clubs it gets talked about now and again. This is the closest I think we've ever come to actually seeing it exist. Um, and even then, it's hard to tell how close they really were to making that happen, but. Yeah, the fight there is between them and UEFA. Basically, the clubs want greater control over the Champions League or a Champions League like competition and the money involved. Right now, they have to split all mm-hmm. that. Cha- they not only are they not guaranteed entry into the Champions League, they have to they have to finish place highly in their own leagues the season before. So not only are they not guaranteed entry, which they would be in the Super League as permanent members, they also have to share all the revenue with every other team in the Champions League. Whereas, and, and, and in their defense, people don't turn on the Champions League to watch, you know, the, to watch, uh, you know, Napoli. I mean, full respect to Napoli is leading the, leading the uh, you know, Serie A is, is, they have, is right now the favorites to win, you know, the, the Italian League and is a very good team. But people don't turn in to watch Napoli. They don't turn in to watch Bayer Leverkusen. I'm just rattling off names of teams that are in the Champions League this season. They don't watch. They don't come in to watch mm-hmm. Red Bull Salzburg um, or Copenhagen. They go to watch Leo Messi and Kylian Mbappe and Neymar at Paris Saint-Germain. They go to watch mm-hmm. uh, Kevin De Bruyne and Erling Haaland at Manchester City. They go to watch the best players in the big teams. And, I mean, we have ra- ratings on the games prove this. We know that you know why should Maccabi Haifa, the Israeli league, who was in the who was in the mm-hmm. same Champions League group with Juventus and Paris Saint Germain, why should they get a cut of a cut of the money when people are only watching Maccabi Haifa because they're playing PSG, and that's the argument well, they're going to make. Right, and I, right, and yeah, that's where the argument against it comes from is well, yeah, but that's how you keep football developing throughout the world is by giving that money to these lower performing teams because that's how they get better. I think if I'm understanding right, that is a big component of the argument against the Super League. Uh, it's, it's to some level, certainly from UEFA's perspective. I mean, they have a they have a role to play in developing the sport throughout the continents. Uh, sort of like we, sort of mm-hmm. like with the FIFA, the FIFA in FIFA, we talk about the documentary. I mean, obviously, it's it's pretty ne- it's a pretty negative look at Set Blatter and to a lesser extent, uh, Joao Havelange, his, his predecessor. And certainly, they were plenty corrupt. But one of the reasons they're able to draw so much support is they there's real money they invested in you know low level infrastructure for the sport in Africa and Asia, at which the right. Europeans were at least necessary. on paper. <laughs> yeah, right. Obviously, there was some difficulty in terms of where some of the money went. But I mean that but but right. some of those investments are real. I mean, you know, you right. saw like 
to, to hold a World Cup in Africa, in South Africa, as they did in 2010, or to hold it in Qatar, you know, in the Arab world. I mean, I, there's a, I, I get why that matters to a lot of people, you know, to, to feel like they want to feel like they're a part of this. They want, you know, to hold a World Cup in Korea and Japan. You know, they, I, I get why that's a powerful motivator. And, you know, it, it, all of them have responsibility to different constituencies. The clubs mm-hmm. are responsible, of course, to themselves and would like to keep most of that money, which they feel not unreasonably that they are that they earn. But at the same time, if you're UEFA, okay, yes, but also, you know, their argument is the Champions League is the stage that helps make you these kind of clubs. So, right, yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting sort of conversation. Um. You know, UEFA is hardly a blameless organization, but I, I, I do sort of like sort of the romance of, you know, playing a Maccabee Haifa or a Copenhagen. I think part of the problem, I, I say problem for you, or I think what's interesting about your perspective, and I'm curious to hear how you react to this. Obviously, I know you've only been following Arsenal for the last two years, or the last year, and we'll count the previous season because you saw, you you sort of lived, right. experienced it through the documentary, All or Nothing. That's true, yeah. Last season, Arsenal did not play in European competition. This year, Arsenal played in the Europa League, which is a nice competition. But, you know, look at the teams. Look at the teams that were in our group. You know, we played mm-hmm. again. You know, we played against uh, PSV Eindhoven is OK. Bodo Glimt and Zurich. Contrast mm-hmm. that with, um, we'll say Tottenham. Tottenham Hotspur, who is in the, the group stage of the Champions League. They played in a group with Eintracht Frankfurt, who's a you know one of the better German teams, Sporting of Lisbon, who is a top team in Portugal, and Marseille, who is historically one of the most powerful clubs in France. You know. Um Chelsea played in a group with AC Milan. Manchester City was in a group mm-hmm. with Borussia Dortmund, the, who is historically, the, right now, they'd say the second best team in Germany. Paris Saint-Germain and Juventus played in a group. When you play in the Champions League, and you're likely to see that happen, you know, very likely to see it happen with Arsenal next season, those are the kind of games you get. And, you know, to me, again, I've seen Arsenal in the Champions League. I know what it's like to play those games against Madrid and Barcelona and some of those other big clubs. It is different. You know, it, it, there are plenty of Arsenal fans who don't get all that worked up about the Europa League. It's fine. It's nice that we're in it. It's good to win. But frankly, it doesn't get very interesting until the knockout stages when you start to play teams you've heard of. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, now That's you're going to. So, you know, to me, the cha- I, I get the appeal of the Champions League to have those games. And, and you know, the, and again, it comes an argument about scarcity, right? Part of what makes those games, those matchups so special is you don't get them that often. Yeah, and if essentially those are the only games you're playing, I mean, how exciting is Liverpool Barcelona the fifth time you see it? You know, like is it really? Does it really mm. still have the same kind of? <laughs> I mean, there is a saturation point, right? And and at some level, who cares if the, if they're the, those are the two best teams? They have all the great players you want to see them, but I think you do reach a bit of a saturation point where it, it it becomes a different kind of special. Like there's something almost regular about it. And I, I without to get too romantic about it, I kind of, I get, I get the idea of not wanting to lose that. Yeah. 
That's true. I guess the one thing I can think of with with what you were just saying is what's what's interesting and not intuitive at first, but then it makes sense if you think about it for a couple seconds. But the incarnation of a team that you're seeing in the Europa League or Champions League any given season is not the incarnation that won them the spot there in the first place, right? Like, you know, Arsenal is doing amazingly this season, obviously. Um, And this team that we're seeing right now absolutely deserves to play amongst the the greats in the Champions League. But who knows what next season (laughs) will bring, right? And that's who's going to actually be playing in the Champions League. Who knows what players they'll lose between now and then and what the record will be next season in in the Premier League. And that's what we're going to see in the Champions League. You don't know that it's going to be like that. Whereas if it was in a membership in perpetuity, like the Super League was going to have slated, Mm -hmm. whatever their configuration is, that's the team that is playing the other teams that are similarly like situated at at the same point in time, you know, but right. It's less meaningful when they're always there and you're just taking for granted that they're always going to be as good. Yeah. And, and, and there is a certain degree of this in the champions league. I mean, I mean, Real Madrid is one like, you know, four titles in the last six years. Uh, You know, it's Bayern Mm. Munich has been there a bunch. Like, you know, like there is, it's not like these clubs, aren't already already dominating the competition we do get these games right. at a certain stage i mean but i think i you know you have pointed out what what as an american the sort of thing that is always struck me as the strangest and i understand why it happens logistically but you're right you know the arsenal team that's going to qualify for the champions league is not the arsenal team that will play in the champions league Right. I mean, it would almost make more sense if the Champions League was like a World Cup style tournament held over the summer after the the regular European season is over or something like that, where it would be the same teams actually competing against each other in, in some kind of playoff. You know, that would be interesting. Yeah, it could uh, be. And and I think that's a direction you're going to see FIFA looking towards rejiggering the uh, the Club World Cup. Um yeah. If the Premier League is the best league in the world, which I think it has a really good argument for being, certainly in terms of depth. You know, if you look at the Super League, mm-hmm. n- the Premier League sent six teams, had six teams out of that group. No other league had more than three. Right. Um, so there's that angle to it. So I, you could actually make a legitimate argument that if the Premier League is, in fact, the best league in the world, and if Arsenal is the best team in the Premier League... Arsenal this year may well be the best team in the world, <laughs> but of course we'll never find out because they're play. You know we're not going to know they'll play in the Champions League next year when they'll be different. Right. They'll still be very good, I think. You know, based on who they've gotten, yeah. you know, who they, they're very they are unlikely. You know, they're unlikely to lose the key players involved in this. But you're right; it's a very sort of fascinating thing as sort of how that functions. But again, yeah. that's one of those. That's kind of the way this has always been done. That's always how it has functioned, right? Well, I'm glad you brought up the the Club World Cup because that was something else that they made mention of in the Super League documentary where they were saying that Super League, their their leadership was in talks with Gianni Infantino and that that was how they had gotten him onto their side early on was, hey, if you back the Super League against UEFA, basically take our side versus UEFA, Mm -hmm. then we'll 
allow all of our clubs to sign on to a club world cup. Then later on, they end up showing that, no, he didn't side with, with the clubs. He sided mm-hmm. and with the Super League, he sided with UEFA ultimately. But it still sounds like that Club World Cup is happening, right? Right. So, so first off, the Club World Cup does exist. It is a relatively small tournament. usually takes place around in December, but because the World Cup can be done, it's going to be held, I believe, in February of this year. Um, and it involves basically the, the winners of the continental competitions of each of the continents. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, so the winner of the champion last year's champions league, uh, from South America, it's called the Copa Libertadores. Uh, and then the club competitions, it, the same similar continental competitions in North America, Africa, Asia, and, uh, Oceania. That's the, Basically, all mm-hmm. the small islands in the South Pacific plus New Zealand. Uh, Australia is an Asian country for the purposes of FIFA. Um, <laughs> they they will and they'll play a small knockout tournament. It's tiered. Uh, basically, the the South American and, and European clubs are by far the superior teams. They get a buy directly to the semifinals, so they would theoretically play the semis and then play each other in the final. Well, the it's a it's interesting sort of step tournament. So that the only you know there's. Um, you know, the, the host and the Oceania team plays each other and the winner advances and there's a round with two other teams and they the winners advance to the semifinals to play the European team. It's kind of interesting. It's, you know, because it's hard to tell how much the European teams really put into it. Um, mm-hmm. the South American teams put a lot into it uh, and they generally try, they generally do fairly well. Although uh, the European teams have won it all, but like a couple of times. Uh, the la- yeah, I'm, I just pull up the list here. The last South American team to win the title was Corinthians in 2012 out of Brazil. Hmm. Since then, it has been all European teams. Uh, a couple of times, typically it's a European versus a South American finalist, although there have been in recent years African teams. Uh, two years ago in 2020, uh, Tigres out of Mexico actually made it to the, played Bayern Munich in the final. Uh, actually, this year the North American representative is for the, for the I believe for the first time is from MLS. It's the Seattle Sounders who won the Champions League, uh, hmm. the la- the most recent uh, Concacaf Champions League. So, um, yeah, yeah. So it's, what they're suggesting is expanding the league, and obviously would involve a lot more of these big clubs. A lot of the big European clubs don't like it because it means they have to take time out of their season. They have to fly somewhere else. It's typically in the Middle East, but it's also been in, in Japan. Uh, they have to fly somewhere else, play these games in the middle of their season to win a trophy that, you know, feel, I mean, all trophies are kind of artificial, but this one feels really artificial, you know, like it's just kind of made up. You have to play mm-hmm. one game, you know, to, I mean, you know, Chelsea, it, Chelsea did it last season or last year in 2020, and then they played two games. And in the semifinals, they played. Al Hilal, uh, the the uh, from Saudi Arabia, and then in the final they played Palmeiras of Brazil. Palmeiras game is kind of interesting. I don't I don't think Chelsea cares one bit about Al Hilal. Mm-hmm. But here they are playing this game, not playing in the the Premier League, which is a trophy they care about, in the Champions League, which is a trophy they care about, and so it's hard to say how much they really care about this. And for a lot of them, it's mm-hmm. in a position now. Part of that negotiation, right, is the idea that actually the clubs will be more willing not only to go to the competition, but really take it seriously because that the, that Club World Cup now matters because now they have the best players. 
that you get to watch and see them play in these big games and competitions. Um, right. Uh, you know, as you point out, Gianni Infantino is very clearly playing both sides. You know, in the end, what matters to FIFA is that they can operate the World Cup. And he has to be very right. careful with how he handles the clubs and all of that. So if you told me that Infantino is playing both sides into that, my response is typically, well, yeah, duh, that's his job. <laughs> you know, yeah. so. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I, does yeah. FIFA run the Club World Cup? Yes. Okay, so then I may I must have been misunderstanding what they were saying because it sounded to me like they were talking about getting a new thing up off the ground. So it yeah, would, must have yeah. been just committing more interest in it, like well, committing the best players and things. Well, it would be it would be a new thing. As I said, currently the Club World Cup is eight teams in it, or seven teams. It has seven teams in okay. it. You get the winners of each six continents, and then the host, the champ, the the champion of the host country's league gets to go too. Okay, fine. Whatever. Okay, so it'd be an expansion. Um, I missed that. Okay, so they are, it'd be an yeah, expansion. Yeah, what they're, what they're talking it. about is essentially a 32-team World Cup-style tournament. Okay. Which would gotcha. which would involve not just teams that won those leagues, but to bring in, okay, you know, it's not just Chelsea, but it's also uh, Manchester City, who they beat in the final. It's also going to be Bayern Munich. Mm-hmm. You know, Bayern Munich the year before won the Champions League, but it's also going to be them... And the PSG team they beat, you know, this year is going to include, uh, you know, Real Madrid, but you'll also have Liverpool, who they beat. So you're you're going to be able to bring in a lot of those, and who knows how they're going to, I mean, who really knows how they intend to, um, you know, it, it involve qualification. I'm sure they're they're discussing those details. I, you know, again, it's amazing how much of this stuff happens without real foresight. For example, they announced years ago that the World Cup was going to expand in 2026, that the next World Cup, the one in the mm-hmm. U.S., is going to have 48 teams. And for a while, the longstanding belief was that the World Cup was going to have three teams in a group, and they were going to play each play two group games, and then you know the winner or the top two teams would move on or something like that. And yeah. then... Of course, like we talked about the last day of group games and the idea of you know teams rigging results based on what they know and don't know. And then you... FIFA came out and said, well, we haven't really decided any. It could be 14 groups. You know, like they don't know. The World Cup is four years mm-hmm. away and th- three and a half years away, and they don't know <laughs> what it's going to look like, <laughs> which yeah. is just stunning to me. But sure, why not? That's just how the, it's amazing how many times they make a decision <laughs> and say, we'll figure out the details later. Yeah. Well, so that's no, uh, that's all very interesting. One, one other thing that they talked about in the documentary that I was I was a little surprised by and wasn't what I understood the situation to be at its inception. But they cast the Premier League in a different light than I'd seen it before. When mm-hmm. when we talked about it originally, we talked about how originally you had the football league in in England, and the Premier League was almost kind of a rebranding. What what they talked about is they actually said that the that people oppose the Premier League's formation in a similar way to how they oppose the Super League's formation. And they actually went so far as to call it a breakaway Super League. And it was it was actually opposed in a similar way. And yet it ended up actually going going through. My question is, what what level of the football league 
formed what we think of today as the Premier League, was it all, was the whole pyramid all reformed or was it just that the top division became the Premier League and everything below that was more or less left as is from the championship on down? Or, or uh, here's, <laughs> here's another theory just based on the way it's named. Was the championship formerly of a top division and that's why it's called championship and then they put the premier league on top of it so what's well no so so for a while <laughs> for a long time they were just no they were sort of uh it was the it was the football league or the top division and then they their names were sort of tied into it was first second like it made sense like the third division was not called league one um <laughs> the premier the creation of the premier league is actually really driven mostly by television that in the in the late 80s and early 90s they began to sort of basically realize you can that they were losing money to the lower leagues and partly because of the way their television contracts were structured and a lot of it was because so much of what they did was limited by the limited number of broadcasters available well they start working with with sky which is part of the the Murdoch media empire and Sky mm-hmm. was basically offering them a lot more money than they were going to be able to make through working through the FA on the football league. And mm-hmm. so essentially what happened was, much like with the Super League, in a lot of ways there's similarities here, the clubs themselves basically decided it was the at the time 18 clubs or the 22 clubs at the t- in in the top division basically broke broke decided to negotiate separately from the FA for their television contract which was giving them a lot more money and that was going to uh you know so it, there were yeah they were they had to, there's all bits about they had to form a, a legal i think as a separate legal entity to make sure that happened um Basically, they were going to treat themselves a little bit more like the NFL in that they were negotiating this TV contract because really TV is where most of the most professional sports leagues make a lot of their money. Mm-hmm. And so they broke away. Uh, they get this contract. Now, part of what prevents them from being quite the same kind of Super League is they still fit into the historical structure. The bottom three teams in the Premier League are relegated down to the championship. The top two teams and the winner of the playoff in the championship or get, get promotion into the Premier League. The difference is the money in the Premier League is now so much bigger. And so for some clubs, hmm. just to be in the Premier League is, is, a, is a success. And what you end up seeing, I mean, it's interesting, not only to be in the Premier League, but also even if you drop down, if when you're relegated, you receive what's called a parachute payment. You basically get a massive chunk of money and so you actually see increasingly ha- had seen increasingly the creation of what are called the yo-yo clubs. They were good mm-hmm. enough to win, had enough mo- financially solid enough to win the championship and win promotion, but they weren't very good in the Premier League, and they sort of go back and forth every couple of years. Um, right. And so the the sense is that it, it in some ways it sort of hurts elements of the lower divisions because the teams that are dropping down from the Premier League. Are are still financially much stronger than the clubs that have never quite made that or made it there. Um, mm-hmm. Now there's still there's still a fair amount of competition um, over the years. Yeah, there have been there have been um, 50 teams that have played in the Premier League since 1992. 
50 different clubs have made appearances okay. at least one season in the in the Premier League. Which is, okay, which that's is actually, pretty spread out. Yeah. yeah, it's it's not bad. And some of the ones that have dropped down, you know, in part have done so, uh, like Leeds we talked about. Portsmouth is another example. Uh, a lot of them have done so because they've made a lot of poor financial decisions on their own. Nobody, nobody made Leeds spend all that money. They did so in a gamble to make the Champions League, and they lost. They lost badly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we heard that from Arsenal, too. There was a comment, uh, you know, sort of, in the last few years that we had a, a Champions League wage bill on a Europa League budget that we were paying, essentially we were paying our players too much. Yeah. Based on where we were and what we were getting from them and the revenue we were bringing in for only being in the Europa League. So, I mean, the, the, you're never far away from the financial side in that regard. And, and the belief was that it would, it would concentrate power at the top, which is, which is kind of true. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you go back in the history of the league and you will see teams get promoted and immediately finish in second. In some cases, even win the league in their first year up. It's ha- it happened a couple times. I can't say that would never happen mm-hmm. today. Uh, Leicester City won the league in, you know, it was, again, it was 20, um, in 2016, two years before they were in the championship. But Leicester's the outlier. Yeah. Lester yeah. Lester is the exception that sort of proves the rule that the the teams that are going to win the Premier League are either the historically dominant clubs which in this case we really mean Liverpool, Arsenal and Manchester United or the clubs yeah. that have received substantial financial assistance um Chelsea and Manchester City um and then Tottenham has done a very good job sort of leveraging themselves. They're kind of they're they're a bit of an odd one in terms of sort of their fit. And you know, all rivalry joking aside, yeah, they they are sort of an odd one. They they have money. They're certainly better off than many other most other team most other teams in England. But they are, you know, they don't have the same kind of financial backing as Chelsea and City do and they don't have the same kind of historical support and historical heft as united arsenal and liverpool hmm. but they, but there they are you know to their credit they've done a good job financially hmm. to be where they are but yeah it's a it's an interesting thing yeah all right so just uh closing out with a couple more questions that i had about this this documentary so one of the people who was a talking head throughout uh he wore a little uh, button on his shirt or a pin that said ast which was the arsenal supporters trust what is that? It, it sounded to me like he was kind of speaking for the fans, but mm-hmm. who forms Arsenal Supporters Trust? What what power do they have? Who are they? So they are. I mean, they are what they say they are. They are they're a supporters trust, which is a uh, an organ an interesting organization you really see in in these European sports, and it tied into the notion of the clubs. So a lot of these clubs are actually. Uh, in some ways publicly held that fans can actually buy into their mm-hmm. support. Uh, Arsenal used to be a publicly held company. It was actually open and had shares. Um, the Arsenal supporters trust is essentially an advocacy group. They, to a certain extent, they sort of, they, they try to speak on behalf of the fans. And a lot of times they will be in contact with the club about things like ticketing procedures prices of course but also you know thing you know the club will ask them hey we're looking to change the concessions what sort of things do you think we'd want i mean stuff that 
it sounds kind of silly at some level, but is important. Uh, and and the supporters right. trust are in there. Um, and they are. I should say that the the club is still technically public. The club is still technically publicly held. It is just. Um, it, it is. It, it's just the majority of it is held by by Cronky uh, Sports and Entertainment and, and Stan Cronky. Oh, okay. Tr- uh, so they they have since essentially, um, and I've you know, I don't I, well, I'm not sure if they own the entire club. I'm going to say something wrong about this, so I want to be very careful about how much they actually own the club. But they have they <laughs> at least have they at least have a controlling interest. Um, right. Okay. No, I'm sorry. They do have a full interest. They have a. So the the Kroenke, Stan Kroenke started investing in uh, 2008. Uh, I'm sorry, back uh, a little earlier actually, and it looks like a few years earlier, maybe 2007. Uh, and has sort of slowly over time added to purchased more shares, added shares. Uh, there was an interesting sort of showdown between uh, KSE and a, uh, a another uh, billionaire named Alisher Usmanov, uh, an Uzbek. And essentially, the club decided that they would rather that KSE own the team rather than Usmanov, and so uh, they they eventually were able to take over the club in about looks like uh, they officially finished that off in 2018. So not actually that long ago. Um, oh, okay, so he is the complete owner, though. So he is not just yeah, the majority shareholder; he owns right, all the shares. Okay. Right, he is the owner, and so the the, the supporters trust is a good way to sort of keep an eye on the, the, because you call it sort of the fans opinion, uh, particularly those fans yeah. located, located locally. Now, you know, to, can anyone speak for all of the fans? No, of course not, but certainly, and, and Arsenal supporters trust and, and the, the, uh, the guy who's in charge of it is a guy named, guy named, uh, Tim Payton. I, I've heard him give interviews and stuff. And generally speaking, they're fairly, you know, the, the supporters trust is going to be fairly level headed. They maintain a relationship with the club, so they're not necessarily going to be out there, you know, manning the barricades every time ticket prices are raised. They are maintaining a relationship, and they are trying to, you know, work on behalf of the club, but they don't own the club. Um, so they are, in a certain sense, independent, but attempt to speak on, on the fans' behalf to ownership. Um yeah, every club is a little okay. bit different. Yeah, that's, in lo- that's pretty much what it seemed like. Yeah, yeah, and and every club is a little bit different in how they how those operate. If you go to Germany, for example, there are actually rules about like fans and these these sort of larger public ownerships have to maintain. I believe it's I believe they call it uh, the golden share fifty plus one. They basically, I believe that they a right they have to like a fifty percent. A majority of the club has to be owned publicly. Which, by the way, yeah, they the, mentioned that in the documentary. Yeah, if you look at the creation of the Super League, look at the look at which of the big leagues didn't join. It's the Germans, yeah, and and the French PSG. Right. But I mean, you know, PSG is France, really, uh, on the on the European stage. But I mean, there are room. I mean, well. Yeah, there were rumors. I mean, PSG is the one who it was the the guy from. Uh, from Qatar, right, was the one right. who uh, owns PSG now, and yeah, he he was featured prominently in the documentary, just explaining mm-hmm. that he just basically agreed with Alexander Cheferin and just kind of formed a, a friendship with him after mm-hmm. the Angeli friendship dissolved, and he just said, yeah, he he just believes in UEFA's view on it and just stood with them. I don't I don't think that that has anything to do with France necessarily. It was well, uh, well, was just amenable well, to the UEFA view. Well, there are a couple layers to this. Don't forget, of course, he's Qatari. Guess who just hosted the World Cup? Right. 
And and you I know, think I, I may have remembered seeing him in the FIFA Uncovered documentary. Too, I'm, like, I, I, I bet, I, I bet sure. he, I bet he was. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. Once you start bringing these sovereign nations into it, now you're starting to play international diplomacy, which is where things get really kind of weird. Um, and of course, there's what mm-hmm. everyone says publicly, and you know, I. I to a certain extent, you have to take people at face value. But when you're when you're sitting for a documentary, especially for this kind of thing, these guys are choosing their words very carefully. I mean, we know that. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And, and you know, the, and, and it turns out this guy—I uh, forget who it is—was you know the sort of the face of the Qatari ownership group now has a prominent position within UEFA, partly because so many of these other people like. Agnelli or Florentino Perez of, at Real Madrid have lost their influence mm-hmm. because they tried to break away. And so there's, right. there is some benefit there. Um, and then you have the German clubs. I mean, you know, say what you will about PSG. They're really the only, I mean, if you were looking, obviously there were only 12 teams. Theoretically, if, if the Euro basketball league was their model, they were probably really looking for 15 teams. And, Mm-hmm. This will this will never be confirmed. No one will ever admit to it. But my suspicion would be the three teams they wanted because then they had twelve. The three teams they wanted and they didn't get. I mean, one of the one of them was Bayern Munich. There is zero. I mean, there is no way you could form any sort of super league without Bayern Munich. They they are one of the, mm-hmm. they are one of the best teams in consistently in Europe. They absolutely. Chances are the other two, if I had to guess, would be uh, Borussia Dortmund and PSG. Otherwise, mm-hmm. what you what you're grabbing are the big money teams. I I remember looking up uh, Deloitte, the financial company, does a a sort of a a financial table based on the 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 worth of these clubs. If you hmm. add. If you look at it, PSG like a fortune, add, like a fortune five hundred kind of thing. Exactly. If you if you add PSG and I I was I for I'm going to get the numbers a little bit wrong on this, but if you add uh, if you if you count PSG, Bayern Munich, and Borussia Dortmund, hold on, let me look this up. The money, Deloitte Money League. Um, if you add those teams, let's see if I can pull up the list. Um, I mean. I, let me let me read off for you the top twelve teams. Let me read off you this list of teams in order: Manchester City, Real Madrid, Liverpool, Manchester United, Paris Saint Germain, Bayern Munich, Barcelona, Chelsea, Tottenham, Arsenal, Juventus, Atletico Madrid, Borussia Dortmund, Inter Milan. That's your top fourteen. AC yeah. Milan is at sixteen, and and interestingly enough, West Ham United is at fifteen. And here's where it gets yeah. funny. The, ne- the next four teams after Milan, Leicester, Leeds, Everton, Newcastle. That's the other bit about this. The English Premier League is separating itself from the rest of Europe in a lot of ways. But, oh, you yeah. know, you look at that list. Those are the teams. Sure. Those are uh, every one of those yeah. teams I named is the ones that are in the Super League or arguably would have been. Well, and there's really no argument about it as far as PSG and Bayern. Like, that was explicit in the documentary. Oh, yeah. They said, I'm pretty sure of it. Yeah, with, with Bayern, it was that the 51-plus percent that is owned by the fans wouldn't approve it. And with PSG, yeah, we, we already talked about that. So mm-hmm. they definitely approached them and wanted them and couldn't get them. And right. as far as uh, Dortmund, you know, I don't, I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, Dortmund is one of those, I suspect. If you're, I mean, it, I cannot imagine who else they would have asked. I cannot imagine who else they would have asked. I mean, maybe yeah. you go to Ajax in the Netherlands? But I, I just, mm. I don't. I, it, I had to, it had to be Dortmund. Yeah. Yeah, Dortmund is, just, Dortmund is just worth so much more than, than Ajax, so, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So... One one kind of closing discussion I wanted to, to have about this is so, especially in, in the fourth episode where they're kind of tying everything together and where it all really falls apart, they're, they kept on referring a lot to who football belongs to and just kind of <laughs> using that as a lens through which they view why it fell apart was that the Super League would be taking ownership away from the fans. Like, it, mm-hmm. I, I don't... I don't see that. I don't think I disagree. I don't think I agree that it would have taken anything meaningful away from them, but I'm probably just not seeing what they're talking about. Can you just explain that to me a little bit? Yeah. So, I, I mean, in a certain sense, I, I, I this is when I really, I, I think there are sort of both angles to this. On the one hand, you know, as we talked about, these are still largely local institutions, they represent, you know, they represent those communities and the fans, especially those local fans are going to feel that connection to their clubs and their teams. And, you know, as much as we make fun of, uh, as they say, a rainy night, a rainy night in Stoke. I mean, there's something to be said for that kind of localized communities, especially playing against one another in those national leagues and sort of the, something like the Champions League being something special and separate and different. And, and it, we should say the Super League is really not posing itself as, as replacing the domestic leagues. It's posing itself as a replacement to the Champions League. Um, having mm-hmm. said all of that, you know, these, especially these biggest clubs, bigger clubs, have become increasingly international over the years. The reason ours, one of the big reasons Arsenal can spend so much money in the transfer window is because of fans like us around the world. You know, because they, mm-hmm. there are millions of people in Thailand who buy Arsenal jerseys, you know, who watch Arsenal on TV, you know, that, that Apple will bid so much money potentially to televise the Premier League. You know, that's part of what, you know, they, and they, a lot of this is a larger, and we can talk about sort of broader trends, you know, in, in, you know, the notion of globalization and the lack of control and then, you know, the sense that you're increasingly dealing with not a community organization, this club, but a certain kind of faceless organization, you know, like, and, and, and the idea yeah. that you're, you know, the sense that a place where you felt like your opinion mattered, it suddenly doesn't. And you hear a lot of this, and and let's let's be honest. You know, obviously, I can speak to our perspective. Certainly, from our perspective, European politics are much more to the left than than American politics writ large. A lot of soccer mm-hmm. fandom is, you know, for all kinds of reasons, uh, certainly on a, on a very much more on the on the 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 global political left. I mean, yes, there are certainly groups with strong, you know essentially fascist connections and, and right-wing extremist groups. But, you know, by and large, especially in England, there's always been a certain, for all sorts of class and historical reasons, there's been a lot of a left lean to the way the sport thinks and especially the way a lot of the fans think about themselves. But there's a resistance to that kind of, that kind of loss of control that you feel. Same kind of thing with the pushback of the Premier League. It sort of feels like this isn't something we should be doing 
but now it's happening and they're talking about like the the commodification of the fans right that they're just sort of that we're as fans we're just expected to show up and pay our money whether we like it or not because because we're addicted this is a this is an addicting thing like we we talked about right the feeling you get after a big win like feels mm-hmm. good it feels really good <laughs> you know and that, and to take a loss you don't really know this because you haven't really seen arsenal lose that much but when they lose <laughs> especially a big game oh my god oh, it just it just it ruins your whole day and that's you know mm. they know they have you hooked and you know there's a sense you can be jerked around by that and yeah so there is a certain sense of a lack of control now how much did they ever have control not really but that sense of a lack of control I think is part of what's going on there. Um, so I think you can talk yeah. about it in ways, a lot of ways we talk about notion, things like globalization and the way people react to those things. Sure. Thanks for joining us at Gooner U. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and some other places, and we appreciate you subscribing to our show and sharing it with friends. If you want to listen to the night we record, you can become a Gooner U superfan to download a raw, unedited recording right away. You can start a free trial on Apple Podcasts today. Please, also, while you're an Apple Podcast, throw us a five-star rating and a review. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, there are not many out there right now, and we'd love for new listeners to find us and help keep the show going. Uh, we appreciate your listenership, and we want it to grow. Again, my name is Dove, and you can find me on Twitter at Dove Frankel. With me, as always, is Keith, and you can find him in a pub watching Arsenal matches. Bye, Keith. Go, you gunners.